0: Because you want to come up with your own story ideas because the ones you come up with are always better than the ones the editors assign to you.
1: (laughs) Okay, we are here today with Steve Wartenberg. Steve is a longtime journalist, having spent several years as a business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. Before that, Steve was a reporter for newspapers in the Philadelphia area, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Bucks County Intelligencer, and Allentown Morning Call. For the past five years, Steve has been a freelance writer and writes for Columbus Monthly and Columbus CEO Magazines, and has interviewed me recently for a story in Columbus CEO. He also now writes for the James Cancer Hospital at The Ohio State University and hosts a podcast for the James, the James Cancer Free World Podcast. Steve is also an avid cyclist. Some might even say he's an obsessed cyclist. He's written several e books about biking in France and has ridden in Pelotonia, a three day cycling fundraiser in central Ohio to support cancer research every year since 2008. Steve, we've known each other for a while through both of our work, and I've always enjoyed talking with you. But I'm uh especially happy to have you on the podcast today and really uh get to hear your story. Usually, you're interviewing me, so this time I get to dig into to your life a little bit, which I'm happy about
0: yeah, I'll try to not ask you any questions and <laughs> to answer yours
1: yeah, well, I know that might be tough doing what you do, but that's okay if there's something you want to know we'll 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 turn the tables a bit too this will this will be fun but um, let's let's start kind of at the beginning as we do on the gravity podcast and um share with me a little bit about kind of your early days your your childhood where you're from your family life etc
0: sure i i've been listening to your podcast and and all your guests your ceos and entrepreneurs have such fascinating childhoods and had life defining moments i don't really have that i had a pretty I don't want to say ordinary or normal because it's really no such thing. But my parents were both teachers. They started out as teachers in high school, and my dad got his PhD in education and taught teachers. And my mom uh, raised went uh, uh, from teaching to being taking care of the three of us—myself and my two younger sisters—who I mostly ignored in childhood and now get along pretty good with. And then my mom went back. And got her PhD at University of Penn, and also became a college professor. So, education was very important in our house. Reading was very important. So, I think I read a lot as a kid, which perhaps influenced me to become a bit of a writer or want to become a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so
1: tell me a little bit about that. Uh, you know, obviously you've got a family that's committed to education. You're growing up in that environment, um, kind of. How old were you when you started to think about writing or start writing?
0: Well, it's interesting, and at least to me, it's interesting. In college, I went to American University in Washington, D.C., and my major wasn't journalism. It was communications. And I didn't really know what. I knew I had to go to college because that's what you did. And I didn't really know what career I wanted or what I wanted to study. But communications seemed like a broad enough area of study that I could figure something out. And I did. And college was, I think, for me, at least college was when I sort of discovered who I was a little bit and what I wanted to do in the sense of not so much writing, but I just wanted to do something, you know? It's like, who... who, Mm -hmm. I always admire people who know at an early age what they want to do. I really had no idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had an internship in college at the USO. Remember the uh, Mm -hmm. the, uh, Hope USO? Mm -hmm. And, oh, an interesting story. One of the first things I wrote, it was Veterans Day, and I had to write a press release about Veterans Day. And I wrote this whole press release. We uh, printed them out on the printer, I put them in the envelopes. I I affixed all the addresses. This was really in the early days of computers, and you did it all by yourself. And this guy who worked there, a general, a retired general, looks at it, and he said, Son, how do you spell veteran? (laughs) And I knew I was in trouble right then and there. And I looked at it. And, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. We pronounce it veteran. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was a stadium in Philadelphia, Veterans Memorial Stadium. But it's veterans. Right. I spelled it like it sounded, which is wrong. So I had to redo the whole thing. And I think I learned an important lesson there about spelling things correctly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um interesting. You know, I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, to hear a little bit more, kind of backing up to, you know, kind of what things were like for you as a kid and through high school. But but it is interesting that you kind of don't necessarily have the the the, the writing piece coming in. Um, that early, and 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 I and I think that's important to highlight because I think you said you know you admire people that know what they want to do early, but I, I think that's kind of unique. In fact, I was I was at my uh, doctor's office yesterday, and I was asking him what it's been like for him to to operate in a pandemic, and um, he said, uh, "Well, the truth is, I've uh, prepared my entire life for this." And he he's uh, got a, a big job at the hospital, and he's been involved with the the governor's office, and and he's got his own practice. and uh, And he said, uh, you know, I remember being pretty young, and my teachers saying to me, you know, maybe you consider going into medicine, <laughs> you know. And so there there are those stories, those people you hear them, and I, and I think a lot of people when they hear those stories think like. Well, what's wrong with me, young people? You know, or or even even you know people um, as they kind of get into their careers, they, they they say you know why is it that I don't have some sort of you know passion or I, I don't I don't have clarity on what I should be doing with my life or what I want to do with my work? And and I actually think it's way more common than than not. It's just not talked about as much. People are kind of you know maybe embarrassed by that. Um, you know, so I, I'm glad you said that.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with not knowing what you want to do when you're 16, 17, or even 20 years old. And I remember from interviewing you that you started out in banking, yeah, eventually deciding that you wanted to do something different. But I think at least for me, it's I didn't know how to do things. Like I, I had in the back of my mind I wanted to be a writer, but how do you do that? And what kind of writing? As it turns out, journalism is very different from writing. A lot of people will say to me, you know, I really like writing, so can I get a job at your newspaper? And, you know, writing and journalism are very different, which took me a, a long time to, to learn.
1: Okay, so so I, that's interesting, too. I'd love to get into that. But let, let's just kind of put a bow on kind of the, the early parts. I am kind of curious, you know, it, it, knowing that you didn't have a, a – clarity on on wanting to be a writer you had this kind of family uh influence ar- around education you know, just tell me a little bit more about kind of like what you were like as a kid what kinds of interests you did have you know kind of you know what maybe little threads you know did end up kind of starting to guide you even if you didn't know it at the time
0: i was very interested in sports uh, in watching them and playing them. I played all the sports and eventually settled on soccer. And that was a big part of my life in high school. I was a okay high school soccer player, a very mediocre college soccer player. I was, what else did I do? I always had jobs, odd jobs. I would cut grass and shovel snow and I worked at restaurants as a, you, you had to be 21 to be a waiter in Pennsylvania back then because of liquor laws. So I was a a, uh, a busboy, a dishwasher, a pot washer at two or three different restaurants. So I always had that desire to work and have a little money. Um, got in a little bit of trouble, nothing significant other than that, oh, that time we robbed a bank. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, one of your guests was talking about how he was influence of summer camp. I did go to a summer camp. Our neighbors down the street actually owned a summer camp. And uh, we were fairly middle class and it would have been hard for my parents to afford it. So they cut us a break and gave us a discount. Although I was only a camper there one year. Then I became a waiter and then a counselor. And camp was, I think, pretty significant for me for a couple of reasons. It's where I discovered uh, girls for the first time. Uh, and you just got to play sports all day and hang out with your friends. And so I really enjoyed going to camp for about five or six years and being away and being a counselor was fun too, to sort of be in charge of a bunk and sort of get all your kids motivated to do what they're supposed to do and not get into trouble. Mm -hmm. So,
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So, so you, you go away to school and, and kind of pick communications. Tell me a little bit kind of like, you know, what starts to happen for you there? You, you mentioned, you know, you, you had this sense that, you know, you wanted to do something. Um, tell me a little bit more about kind of like what that was and how things started to unfold for you.
0: Well, it's like you decide, you know, you, you start become a junior or senior and you say, what, what am I going to do? Where am I going to live? You know, I'm from Philadelphia, but going to school in Washington, D.C. So what am I going to do and where am I going to live and how am I going to make a living? So like I said, my degree was in communications and I had an internship at the USO. And the guy who was the director of public relations for the USO became a mentor, one of my first mentors, really interesting guy who who pushed me in certain ways, like I would write something, a press release or a story for their newsletter, and I would show it to him, and he'd just look at it and shake his head, not tell me what was wrong with it, but just say, do it again. Mm -hmm. And he would do that two or three times, so it met his approval. And he was always looking for, he wanted something creative and different, which really put that in my mind at an early age. And I always tried to do that as a newspaper reporter, which often got me in trouble. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I graduated from college and he I had an opportunity to get a job with him. Or my other thing eventually was with the American Helicopter Society, which sounds kind of strange. But in Washington, DC, it's where all the national associations are. There's got to be four or five of them for your industry, for the construction industry. There's one for nursing, doctors, everything. There's five or six thousand of them, and the American Helicopter Society had an opening for the director of communications, which sounds kind of uh, like a high profile job, but really there was a staff of four people. I became the fourth person and our office was in a one bedroom apartment. The bedroom was the executive director's office. The two other people were in sort of the uh, living room and I was in the corner by the bathroom. And that was our office. And the first week, I could sense there was something wrong. The other two people did not like the executive director and very, were very disrespectful to her, which was really shocking to me. I get to the office on my second Monday, and the other two people had quit with no notice. They just left. <laughs> and just the two of us to run this association, which turned out to be okay and fine. And I learned a lot about leadership and what makes a good boss and what makes a bad boss. And I also learned that I didn't love communications and PR, but what I loved in that job was we had a magazine called VertiFlight about obviously helicopters. VertiFlight means vertical flight. Mm-hmm. It's what mm-hmm. helicopters do. And I love doing that. And that's sort of what pushed me toward journalism. And also by a fluke, I got a job freelancing For Soccer America magazine, I had a little bit of background as a soccer player and as an editor of a magazine, I think impressed them, So I became the Washington DC correspondent for Soccer America. And then by great bit of luck, two or three months later, Washington DC gets a professional team in the North American Soccer League. And I'm the Washington DC correspondent. So I got to cover them and sort of learn a little bit about sports writing and what it entails. And I think that further pushed me to want to become a journalist. Initially, I wanted to be a sports writer, but it also introduced me to travel, which is a huge part of my life. In 1981, my second year at the Helicopter Society, I got to go to the Paris Air Show, which is the world's biggest air show. They hold it every other year. And it was just my first time going overseas, I didn't know any, even though I took French in high school, I didn't really retain any of it. I didn't know what I was doing. And actually, <laughs> I, 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 my college girlfriend was spending the year studying in south of France, and I met her in Paris. That was part of the allure of going there. Mm-hmm. And we had been apart for several months, and people kept saying, oh, these long-distance relationships will never work. And I said, oh, come on, you're kidding this will work. We're really in love, but it didn't work. And I discovered that in Paris. (laughs) I did discover I love traveling. And I went back to the 83 Paris air show and traveled all around, went to uh, Munich, Amsterdam, London, and came back to work. And about that time decided, you know, I don't really see a future doing what I'm doing. It's a good job. I liked what I was doing but it's time to become a journalist. A sports reporter was my goal.
1: Okay,
0: And so I wound up going back to school at Columbia has a one-year master's degree program in journalism. Mm-hmm. And, and you really, tell
1: me a little bit about that. Like, what was it that that had you saying, like, I have to be a journalist or I, I really, this is what I want to do now. You know, you've had this experience, you've kind of seen different aspects of uh, of of the working world, you've traveled, you know, tell me, you know, kind of how did you decide this was it?
0: I think early on in my career at the Helicopter Society, probably you were too young to remember this, but an airplane took off from National Airport in D.C., which is now Ronald Reagan Airport. And And it was a snowy, icy winter day. And as soon as it took off, it Plummeted into the Potomac River. Mm. And it was huge national and international news. And the um, US Park Police helicopters came and rescued people from the airplane. It was like floating in the water. The helicopter came and rescued them. And working for the helicopter society, I said, I am going to interview these guys and do a story about Mm. this. And before that, it was really the magazine was more technical stuff, like how do you build a better engine and things like that. But I wanted to take it in a way that was more interesting to a wider audience. So I got to interview these pilots and I was just fascinated by it and got to write the story. And back then you had cassette tape recorders and I had a horrible experience where midway through the interview, my battery and my cassette recorder died. So the second half of the interview Was lost, and I had to remember and take my notes and call them back. And gave me it's given me a lifelong fear of recording people. I like check constantly now. But I think that was the first time I really got to write a story that was my own. Mm -hmm. And then between that and then I did another story where I flew down to Atlanta and went with the Georgia State Police helicopter Mm -hmm. unit, going after marijuana growers. Mm -hmm. And they said, all right, we're going over to this one house because they're they're growing pot in the backyard. And this was back, of course, when it was illegal. And they go, watch this. And we're flying over and they go, watch this. The guys went in on the ground in the front door. And sure enough, two guys run out the back and hide in the shed. And we're watching them do it, the whole thing. And they just radio them and say, these guys are in the shed. And we just watched the police come over and arrest them. Hmm.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I would imagine that, you know, once you kind of, Make that commitment, and you get into the work. Um, and, and maybe this is just kind of the the fantasy, and, and maybe this is the kind of sexy part of the of the job. And, and I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, for you, what what it's really like. But it, it seems like it would be really interesting, like all the time, like the the, the level of curiosity that you have to have, the level of um, kind of intrigue and and. Uh, kind of exposure to so many different things, so many different people, so many different situations experiences you know to really be able to 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 dig in deeply and and get super curious with people to you know kind of investigate and to poke and prod and find the story and get the answers it it seems so fascinating and and you know, energizing, I would imagine that once you kind of get in a couple of those situations, you're hooked. Is that, is that what it was like for you?
0: Yeah. And I think you could have been a good journalist too, because doing this podcast, it's easy to see that you're interesting. You're interested in listening and learning about people's stories. And mm-hmm. me, there's all different kinds of journalists. You could be a hardcore investigative reporter or a beat reporter, or an environmental reporter, an education reporter. But for me, I was always interested in the people stories. And I I just always just drifted toward that. I'm just interested in learning about people, what makes them tick, what they've overcome, what their goals and dreams are. And so I always sort of tailored my writing toward that. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, I probably... And I've done a lot of magazine writing, and I think I'm better tailored toward that, where you have more time with one subject rather than newspaper reporting, where it's you're churning out an article or two a day. You write something, you go on to the next thing. It's breaking news. Mm -hmm. So I always lean toward people related stories. Like I remember when I interviewed you, it was like I wasn't so much interested in the intricacies of how you built your gravity building, I was more interested in what made you tick.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I appreciated that because I was more interested in in the in the same story. You know, I I find the kind of, you know, the business side of things. It's really, it's really why the podcast that we're doing takes the format that it does, is that I'm not as interested in kind of like the ultimate success and kind of plugging what we're up to today. It's more about like, how did all of that come together? And and you know the human experience, the journey, which I think is you know just uh, for me very fascinating. I've never thought of myself as a journalist, but I do really like to get curious with people and hear about their stories and their journeys. I think it's helpful uh, to to hear to learn to kind of see yourself in other people and um, just you know kind of. Be connected in this in this this life. This journey is fun for me, um, and, and and you know that's what you've been doing your your whole career. Um, and I'm curious, like, tell me a little early on, maybe you know, in the kind of Philadelphia days or or with the Dispatch. Like, tell tell me about some kind of standout stories or experiences or memories of kind of people or or, or opportunities you had to write that
0: really touched you. Sure. And you just got me thinking about really what I liked about doing it. And I have this great story, which I'll tell you in a minute about the Normandy with the U.S. Army Rangers who landed there on D-Day. But early in my career, I did become a bit of a, I, I was a sports writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer covering high school sports all through the seasons I covered football, basketball, baseball, but also Track, cross-country track, indoor track, outdoor track, and meeting, interviewing, probably four or five thousand high school kids and coaches. You just learn about people that there and this was in Philadelphia, so it was from uh, inner-city Philadelphia, public and private Catholic schools, to the rich suburbs, to the not-so-rich suburbs, to the towns like Chester and Coatesville, old steel towns that were in desperate straits, and there was a lot of poverty. So you meet. Every kind of person. And I think this is what great what's great about journalists and why journalists perhaps are a little more open-minded and accepting of people is you just learn, or I learned early on, that all these kids are the same. I mean, well, I shouldn't say this, they're similar, not the same. Everyone's a little different, but similar in that they all wanted to do well. They all wanted to make someone proud. They all wanted to make someone realize. So everyone's like that. And everyone has a story. That really got to spend time talking to kids, sometimes their parents, their coaches. And it was just a tremendous learning experience and to learn how to talk to different people and create a conversation and how to listen. So, those are just great skills that I think journalists have that perhaps other people should. Listening is an underrated skill. And the better you can do it, perhaps um, we might all get along a little better.
1: Boy, boy, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I think uh, we—I've operated in a um, coaching program called Built to Lead. I, I think maybe I mentioned that when we talked. It was a big um, part of me forming my business, and I still use it today. And and um, have helped others go through that process. And one of the very first thing—I think actually it was the very first thing we did in that program was something called Seven Good Minutes, which is simply sitting across from somebody, looking them in the eye and asking them questions for seven minutes without responding to them with your own thoughts. And, and, and the like, next level of that is trying not to think at all while they're talking and simply listen. And, and boy, you know, I realized how hard that was. And and how hard it is for people. I mean, the instinct to want to just talk and to say what you think is so prevalent. (laughs) There's such a desire for people to to have to be heard, you know. But but you know, in order to be heard, somebody has to listen to you. And so, I think you're right. It is a skill. Certainly, you have to have as a journalist if you're really gonna hear the, the story and 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 find you know what's really underneath that. And I and I am kind of intrigued by this part of you that um was was in the sports world. You know, that that sports was something that, you know, as a lot of kids and, and and boys, you know, plays a role in our lives. It's part of kind of our societal, you know, programming, but it is what it is. And and you know, you got to see the stories that were uh, really human stories, you know. I, I find um, you can do this in any aspect of life, but sports is one of them where there are a lot of really um, kind of deep stories beyond just the 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 result of the game. Um, and 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 that sounds like you started to see that pretty early on too.
0: Yes, I saw it in the high school covering the high school sports, but I also had an opportunity a couple years in. I got to do uh, two sports books. The first one was a biography of John Cheney. I don't know if you remember or have heard of him. I do,
1: yeah.
0: Coach at Temple University. Yeah. yeah, sure, I remember. And that was a fascinating year. He's an African-American man. He must be now in his early 80s, so that gives you a sense of the era he was in. Yeah. The second best basketball player in the city of Philadelphia in high school, but couldn't get a scholarship because just... Uh, black players didn't get scholarships back then, couldn't get coaching jobs because African-Americans didn't get coaching jobs. Had to just took him forever to get to Temple and was this amazing coach and advocate for education. I got to spend two years with him and his team and learn all about him and, and players on his team and perhaps a little bit more about what it's like to grow up uh, as an African-American in this country and the obstacles you face. And some of the families they come from, and and just all the ups and downs, and he was just such a powerful and passionate spokesperson for what he called leveling the playing field—the problem that we still are dealing with today in this country. So spending a year with him, two years with him and his team was just a tremendous learning experience. And then I did a book with Randall Cunningham, Scrambling Quarterback, the original scrambling. Sure. Sure. And again, another great. Experience to learn what it was like to be a really a celebrity. I mean, everywhere I went with him, he was mob. People knew him. What and thank goodness there were no cell phones and selfies back then, or it would have been horrendous. But just to learn what it was like to be one of the two or three most famous football players in this country it was just a fascinating experience. I
1: bet you know both cases. You've got African American men in in kind of pioneering. To some degree, leading roles. I mean, Randall Cunningham was like I, one of one of maybe Warren Moon. I'm trying to think of others, you know, but he was certainly one of the first scrambling, running African American quarterbacks. So he, I think, he was probably the first that really kind of changed the position. Um, and uh, and and yeah, I mean, that was it was a big deal back then to be certainly up. Close and see that in person had to be pretty fascinating.
0: When he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the ultimate weapon. They called him. Mm-hmm. We had a little problem. He, he got hurt right as the book came out. Mm-hmm. He broke his leg, and so and it was he got hurt on a Sunday. That Tuesday, we were going to drive up to do the David Letterman show to promote the book, and I was going to go with him. I wasn't going to be on the show, but yeah. uh, that was canceled. Uh-huh. 10 signings were canceled. The book, so the book didn't do well. That's one of the things you learn with uh, sports books is it's probably better to write about a retired athlete because they won't get hurt in the middle of the <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay. So so tell me a little bit, you know, as you kind of um, come to Columbus and get involved with the dispatch, um, and, and I'm I'm curious, you know, ultimately I want to hear about your cycling, your love for cycling, and kind of how that's led you to to your work today. But, you know, what brought you to Columbus? And and tell me a little bit about all the years that you worked at the Dispatch.
0: So I actually first came to Columbus to teach journalism at Ohio State. It was uh, 2006, and I was working at the Allentown Morning Call. And the handwriting was already on the wall that there was big changes in the newspaper industry. We'd already had, I think, three rounds of cuts. At the morning call uh, we were owned by tribune newspapers a big you know big national chain of 20 or so papers and they kept uh having layoffs and the bureau i worked at got closed and i was gonna have to move to another bureau and the job i wanted as a general assignment reporter they eliminated those jobs so already in 06 the, con- the contraction of the newspaper industry was starting so i I'd looked for other options and I taught at a couple colleges in the Philadelphia area. And so I took this job at Ohio State. I was the advisor to The Lantern, the school paper back then, not now, but back then it was a five days a week daily printed newspaper. And so I I was the advisor to that and taught a couple classes, which I loved. I, I loved teaching and working with these young, passionate journalists. But I missed being a reporter a bit and there was an opportunity at the dispatch in 08 to be a business reporter. I'd never been a specific business reporter before, but in theory, if you're a good reporter, you should be able to cover any beat. It's all the same. You interview, you gather information, you learn, you write your stories, and it worked out well. The editor and the assistant editor, Ron Carter and Barbara James, were Great editors, two of the best editors I've ever had, and the Dispatch back then, it was had not been as affected as some of the other newspapers because it was privately owned by the Wolf family, and it had made money for years. But all of a sudden, probably wasn't. But the Wolf family, you may know this more than me, were very involved in real estate, yeah. and and had a lot of income from real estate, so there wasn't as much pressure, I think, to make. Uh, profit from the newspaper, so they held off longer than other papers in having cuts. Mm-hmm. But eventually, there were cuts. And- yeah, I actually think you know my my understanding of it was
1: that that's probably true. I think their wealth had you know been created in in multiple ways, but um, I also think they really held on as long as they did because there was a a deep sense of it being important. To the city, um, and that there was something about that that really mattered to them that they couldn't really, you know, just kind of let it go into, you know, out of town conglomerate hands, and and ultimately, you know, it, it did. But I, I think, you know, they they really tried to kind of keep that local, you know, pride gem, you know, for as long as they could. You know, I'm I'm not certain about that, but you know, I think you know that's kind of part of it, at least.
0: Oh, you're definitely right. John Wolfe, the 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 publisher, cared very much about the city, and he really helped some of the big improvements in the city. And and you're right; he did want there to be good quality journalism. Mm -hmm. Did fight the good fight as long as he could before he finally sold the paper in 2015. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, you, you, uh, you go from kind of teaching into, into, uh, this, you know, this beat, you know, writing, um, from a a business standpoint, you know, a new thing I'm kind of curious, and this is maybe just my ignorance, but, um, how does it work? Does stories get assigned to you? Do you you have any say in kind of, you know, which, which things you get to grab onto and, 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 and run with or um, tell me, you know, like tell me a little bit about like the inside the the the, the paper, you know, kind of uh, dynamics, you know, how's that? How what's that like?
0: So within the business department, there would, would be different beats. Each reporter had a different beat and mine was the financial beat, which include banks, insurance companies. So. This was June and July of 2008. So, what happened in June and July of 2008? Um, June and the, July of the, 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 the Great Recession. Yeah, yeah, and, right, right. And I was covering banks and insurance yeah. companies and financial uh, stories. So, I oh, was yes. in my head from the beginning and treaded water for the next two years, just trying to stay afloat and learn yeah. and keep up with all the breaking stories. So. That's what I covered. And to answer your question, a good reporter tries to come up with story ideas on their own, good ones, that you mm-hmm. pitch to your editor and that the editor says, yep, yeah, go do it. Okay. And you have a budget you create where you on online where you'll write the stories that the editor can check and you'll meet with them periodically. Because you want to come up with your own story ideas because the ones you come up with are always better than the ones the editors assign to you, <laughs> mm-hmm. Every, because all reporters we have a bit of the an ego and we think our story ideas are better than the ones get assigned mm-hmm. to you. Some of it's breaking news when Huntington has their quarterly report in the midst of this great recession and mm-hmm. has posted losses of 400, 500 million. That's today's story, right? And then you learn from that. You say, what's the bigger story? Well, let me dig into unemployment and how it's impacting people. What are the stories I can write about specific people or groups of people and what they're doing, how they're coping with it? So you have breaking news, obvious things, and then you try to dig deeper and find uh, trend stories or people stories or feature stories or investigative stories and... And particularly back then, with all this going on in the economy, there was not a lack of stories to do. It could be mm-hmm. two, three a day, and you could be working on one. And then at four o'clock, you get breaking news that the CEO of some some big company uh, was forced out. Mm-hmm. Got to finish one story and then write the other story and then get something on quick on the web and then get back to do your story for the daily paper. So. Mm-hmm. And it became harder and harder with less and less staff and more things that you had to do uh, in terms of social media. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it is a really fast kind of pace and changing climate. I mean, the, the, the amount of kind of change in the journalism world, you know, from print to media, to social media, I mean, it, it's it's really changed significantly over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, and yeah, I, I, that was a time that was certainly uh, pretty uh, wild for me too. And, you know, I can imagine what it was like. There was no shortage of, of stories. I mean, you didn't you didn't have to have somebody give you assignments. I mean, they were popping up left and right. What, one thing that I've learned through this pandemic that, you know, whether it's... Um, you know, the tragedy of 9-11, the, the recession of, uh, you know, de- the great recession of 08, 09, and, and, you know, now in this pandemic is that every, so often, you know, every, you know, 5, 7, 10 years, something of tremendous magnitude, which, which was totally, you know, unexpected for the most part and really kind of outside of of um, my control um you know really uh impacted not just me my business but the entire world certainly the country massive industries and and now it seems like I've kind of come to believe that is the only thing that you can really count on, (laughs) that that's going to happen every so often. And as a, as a journalist, you know, I wonder, you know, as, as I told you about, you know, my experience with, with my doctor, he said, I've been, you know, kind of, uh, working my whole life for this. I'm preparing my whole life for this. That, that's kind of, I would imagine part of what you are prepared for that you're kind of, you know, in some ways, like, Waiting for and maybe even excited by you know that, that there's these massive moments is that is that true
0: oh definitely. all reporters live for the big story, unfortunately, so many of them are tragedies, yeah, and, I mean, I was there in Philadelphia, covering not the nine eleven you know covering all the local stories, the recessions, big murders, and you know some of so much of it is tragedy, but yes, those are the things that get your adrenaline pumping that's in many ways, why you become a reporter for the big yeah. stories. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Steve, tell me, tell me about cycling. Where did, where did that come into your life? Cause I know there's a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of make major kind of impactful components of this for you. You know, certainly you've, as I said, in the bio been very active in Pelotonia and you're now working closely with the James Um, where did this start for you?
0: So back in 1985, I I was covering the Paris air show for the third time. And I always took a couple weeks off because I was already over there and the, you know, the company had paid my uh, airfare. Actually, by that time I was, I had just gotten out of journalism school at Columbia and lined up some freelance articles covering the Paris air show, uh, paid for my trip. And I had these two weeks off and I said, you know, I'm, I've been up to all the big cities by train. I want to get out in the country. So I took a train to the Loire Valley. And on, as I'm on the train, I read in my guidebook, Let's Go France, the best way to see this area is by bicycle. And it listed a place in the city I was going to rent a bike. So not having ridden a bike since high school, I rented one and rode around and was in tremendous pain, my rear end and my legs and everything, but loved it. I just loved the freedom, the adventure of it, just being mapping it out and going and just loved it. And in 1990, I kept riding, but in 1990, I took the summer. I was still covering high school sports and there are no high school sports in the summer. So I saved my money and uh, I went to France and rode from Paris to Nice. And then I was just totally hooked. And then went back in 92 and rode from Paris to Amsterdam. Got married shortly after that and somehow convinced my wife, who's not a cyclist and never was, that on our honeymoon, we're going to bike through France. <laughs> and we survived that <laughs> without yeah. getting divorced. So, and I've learned how to combine. Our passion. She's not still not a cyclist, but um, uh, loves traveling. And, and you know, I think you may have met my wife. I think I just remember that. Do you remember? I'm sure you do. Soon before Gravity opened, you had Lori Moffat come in and teach an urban Zen class.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: My wife is also an urban Zen teacher and went with Lori to help teach.
1: Yes, yes, I do. I have met your wife. Yes, and I remember that event.
0: Yeah. So we're all connected in this world. That's right. So I've just loved, I just fell in love with cycling and still cycle to this day. And um, ooh, should we talk about the incident?
1: Yes, let's talk about it. You were in a in a really bad, uh, accident. And I'll let you tell the story.
0: So 2013, November, I had just gotten back from a trip to France cycling in the Loire. And I wrote up my goal back then. I had started writing eBooks about traveling in France because I thought of myself and I'm a little bit of an expert on it. So I wrote these eBooks and I'd just gotten back from the Loire and was out for a ride And it was a Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. And next thing I know, it's Wednesday and I'm waking up in the hospital. I had been hit from behind by a intoxicated hit-and-run driver. And it was pretty bad, very bad. It was, I mean, I'm very lucky to be alive. There's people who get hit in that similar way where someone going at whatever the speed is, 40 miles an hour, just hit you from behind and you. Gravity and physics fly you back into the windshield and then back over the car. And so it was really bad and life changing. I had 15 or 18 broken bones, including a fractured skull and traumatic brain injury. And that traumatic brain injury is sort of the lingering um, injury that stays with you. And again, I was really lucky. I just lucked out in so many ways. I've met other people had traumatic brain injuries and sort of the the level you can go from one to ten i'm sort of luckily at the bottom you know in terms of severity where it can be so severe that you lose your ability to communicate or walk Mm -hmm. i've just met a few people who it's just they can't work anymore they really are disabled one woman i met she was on the telephone and lightning struck went through the telephone into her head and she got a traumatic brain injury Mm -hmm just shocking that those things can happen. Yeah. But, I, you know, that's ultimately why I left the dispatch. Mm-hmm. The traumatic brain injury changed me in a lot of ways. And it's also what led me to some of the things we talked about, meditation and mm-hmm. yoga mm-hmm. and just trying to alter my brain. You can change the chemistry of your brain through these things, which I'm trying to do. and without yeah. My wife, through Urban Zen, know these things, but I was able to go back to work at the dispatch part-time and then full-time, and my cognitive skills were about the same. My ability to gather information and write were the same, but there was a price to be paid. I was just exhausted all the time. I couldn't sleep. My stress and anxiety levels were up, which are symptoms of a traumatic brain injury. I was just more susceptible to sound and light, and so after in June of June or July of 2015 i just decided it was just best for me to go the freelance route and left the dispatch which was a tough decision i mean there's just something special about working for a newspaper the people you work with mm-hmm. and being part of that news cycle so it's a very hard decision but one i really had to make mm-hmm. and so i'm still dealing with some of the impact and life changes from a injuries and traumatic brain injury, but I am still a cyclist. Mm -hmm. I am able to ride and actually enjoy it. It's in some ways, it's a form of meditation for me to get out and, and just be quiet. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I want to kind of dive in with you on all of that. I appreciate you sharing because, um, I get the magnitude of, of, you know, that experience, um, not, not, fully cuz you know you can't without having experienced it directly but i can sense it in you just how uh, scary and and traumatic and life changing that was and and if you don't mind i'd love to just kind of hear a little bit like was it really like that like you you actually you're on your bike and the next thing you know you're in the hospital Do you, is that kind of the, the way that you remember this
0: yes totally the last thing i remember I was near the, um, on McHugh Road, near that OSU golf course, mm-hmm. the parked there. And I stopped to get some water. And I texted a friend who was visiting from out of town. And I said, hey, I'm on the way home. I'll meet you at one o'clock for lunch. Mm-hmm. And that's literally the last thing I remember. And it was about half a mile or three quarters of a mile when I got back on the road and was riding toward that pedestrian bridge to Whetstone Park that I got hit. And I do not remember a thing until waking up Wednesday. They tell me I was on a respirator, which I have no memory of. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was in some sort of semi-induced coma, but was thrashing about. And one friend told me about how worried they were that I was pulling things out, the eye and things. And he had to like sit on me and yell at me to stop moving about. But I don't remember any of that. I don't mm-hmm. remember anyone visiting me. Uh, my parents came in from Philadelphia. I don't really remember that first day or two of seeing them. That whole first month was pretty hazy mm-hmm. between the brain injury and the the pain killing drugs they put you on. Yeah. And, and you're sort of just... I don't think I was fully aware of the seriousness of it and how close I had come to death for weeks or months later. And mm-hmm. it, it was much harder for my wife than me. I mean, mm-hmm. she's the one dealing with it more than me and mm-hmm. our niece who was going to law school at the time had just moved here like a month before was my wife's partner in helping me and mm-hmm. our caregivers and for them i mean i can't even imagine that call they get to come to the uh, icu at riverside your husband's been in an accident i just can't imagine that and then come walking in and seeing me and having to deal with that, but I mean, not only thank God the call wasn't your husband's was been killed because right. I know someone four or five months later, someone who I who I met a cyclist that happened to him. His name mm-hmm. is OG and Papa. This same type of accident, and it's just devastating. I went to his memorial service, and I just remember seeing his wife there and thinking that could, Susan could be in this, could have been in this same position where my memorial service, which Mm -hmm. is heartbreaking to me that she had to go through that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it had to be tough for everybody. And, you know, thank God you're, you're here. And, and, you know, um, I I love the fact that you have turned to uh, meditation and yoga and other ways to um, heal. And maybe you can just kind of elaborate a little bit on that experience and kind of how that's been helpful for you as you, as you've, uh, you know, as you're recovering still, you know, from
0: this accident? Well, at the time of the, I don't like to call it an accident.
1: Yeah, I I actually was just thinking that it's an incident. I mean, when there's an intoxicated driver here, that's that's not an accident. You're right.
0: At the time, my wife was in the training for Urban Zen. And Urban Zen is, it's um, therapies and skills that Can be used to help people in life. It's it's meditation, guided meditation, Reiki, uh, aromatherapy, gentle yoga, and it's used to help reduce stress and anxiety. She does it with cancer patients, um, with other sorts of people who are overcoming injuries or illnesses. They do it a lot with people in high stress jobs. So it was perfect timing in a sense that all those modalities she practiced on me after my incident she did a lot of guided meditation where and uh reiki and aromatherapy and it's as you know it's almost i i equate it to uh, writing and journalism it's a craft almost and you need to learn and practice meditation you're not going to be good at it at first and I've gotten to the point now where I don't get frustrated at myself for not being good at it. I just realize, all right, just take your time, clear your thoughts, and do it. In fact, earlier today, there's a new show on Netflix called, um, I think it's called Guide to Meditation by Headspace. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a class. Mm -hmm. And and at the end, they do a guided meditation, which I did earlier today. And that helped me calm down before talking to you. Yeah, yeah, it's so helpful. I, I, the, the, I
1: practice uh, transcendental meditation, and, and what they say is you, you always get what you need. And so, if that means that you have a lot of thoughts, well, that's just you had a lot of thoughts. If you fall asleep, you needed to sleep. You know, that there, there is no wrong. And, and I've kind of found that to be true for me that, you know, kind of wherever you are, um, you can get a benefit. You know, you don't have to be in some transcendental state for 20 minutes at a time or whatever to really get the benefits of meditation.
0: Yeah, I've, and that's, that's a great point. And any little bit helps. And one of the side effects for me with this traumatic brain injury is it's just so hard for me to shut my brain off. I think that's mm-hmm. why I have problems with sleeping. Mm-hmm. So meditation really helps. It helps you in that moment and it helps you throughout the day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Steve, tell me a little bit about your work at the James. You know, let's kind of, as we start to wrap up, I want to make sure we connect with your work there. You've obviously been so involved with Pelotonia, not just as a writer, but as a supporter, as a journalist, as a fundraiser. And now you're, you know, working with the James, you have your podcast. Tell me a little bit about kind of that
0: piece of your life. Well, Well, I have a a bit of a cancer connection. Susan, my wife, was when I first met her and for years after a pediatric oncology nurse and also a breast cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. So cancer is something I'm familiar with. So getting the opportunity to be involved in Pelotonia and then working for the James has been tremendous because, I mean, cancer is just devastating what it does to people. And we need to to make this a cancer-free world. And I get to interview, talk to, just like we're doing, with these amazing, passionate, intelligent, dedicated, world-class doctors and scientists at the James who really are saving lives every day. And I get to learn about immunotherapy and about this new proton radiation beams that they're going to have to treat patients. And i gotten to know these doctors and they're just so inspiring and so dedicated and so smart and so nice. I mean, it, it, there's this culture of niceness at the James and connection to the patients. And I know I'm sounding like I'm doing PR for him, but mm-hmm. it's so true. And everyone who's been there, I think, says the same thing. And this connection between the James and Pelotonia, I think, are you part of Pelotonia? Yeah. Yeah. So To, to ride with these doctors and all these people together is this most inspiring thing of the year for me and to not be able to do it this past year was, was a bit devastating. I always say that in this world in which we're so divided, Pelotonia is this like oasis of kindness that brings mm. us together. Everyone's mm. there to help other people, which isn't that the best thing we can do? It sure is. It sure is. And um,
1: yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to have you on today. I um you know, have always felt that the the journalists in this community have been very kind to me for the most part, and have um, taken a sincere interest in in my life and in my work. And I've developed really great relationships as a result. You know, when people talk about the journey, part of the journey for me is um, these memories of of spending time with people and sharing your story and having them get it, understand it, write about it, capture it. You know, it, it's, it's been impactful for me personally with my family, with my um, business to grow a business here. And you've been a part of that on multiple occasions. Um, and there's been others, you know, Katie Smith and Jim Weicker and uh, Christy Eckert and, you know, I, I um, you know, um uh, and others and and so you know it's 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 fun to to really you know get a chance to honor you and your story because you do have such a uh, a passion for the work and a passion for this community and a passion for cycling a passion for uh Pelotonia and james and and I just you know see a lot of a lot of passion and a lot of joy and and and, and human uh beings and and experiencing life and doing good for for others in this community and so um yeah i just wanted to you know thank you for for you know your uh collaboration and friendship and and your time to share your story today
0: well thank you it was i was a little nervous about doing this about being on the other side of the microphone made it easy and it was a lot of fun to i guess be the one telling my story rather than someone else's
1: yeah yeah, good. Well, any final thoughts, anything else you want to share with the audience before we wrap up?
0: Well, we're, it's literally noon on Wednesday, January 20th. We're about to have a new president. So let's just hope that we can all come together, be nicer and deal with the problems going on in this country.
1: Yeah. Amen. I'm, uh, incredibly hopeful today. And, uh, and, and believe that, um, the, the future is bright. So, all right, Steve, thanks again. I appreciate your time and your story and, and all that you're doing. And, uh, we'll, we'll make sure to connect our audience to where to find you and, uh, continue, uh, the dialogue. Take right. care. Thanks. Be safe. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram, at thegravitypodcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy
0: of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.